It's good to see y'all in the house of the Lord today. Before I get wind up, I probably told y'all in the past that me and some other church pastors of mine, we text on Sunday morning. And you never know what's going to come out of the text message, but several of y'all know Brother Rick Kemp down at uh, Mercury. And of course, he's ordained minister. I think Rick has been here uh, for me for a time or two and uh, preaches in, in supplies in lots of uh, other Baptist churches. But this morning he said, Happy Easter, everybody. Remember, it's not about the rabbit. It was Christ that came out of the hole. <laughs> think about that. So if you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, I want you to turn to the first chapter of Acts. The first chapter of Acts. We'll begin reading here shortly. Now, this is going to wind up our four-week uh, series that we had. You know, we started about four weeks ago or whatever, three weeks ago, and we talked about the mockery of Calvary. And we covered all the things that Jesus went through as He was being led to be crucified. All the ridicule, all the, 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 the punishment, the beatings, the 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 uh, torture that that he went through, and then the next week we talked about the uh, the uh, majesty of Calvary and how even though Jesus was on the cross the whole time he was going through what he was going through he was in full control and and you remember in in that particular sermon we we talked a lot about the seven sayings the seven last sayings of Jesus. And one of the things that jumped out at me, maybe it jumped out at some of y'all, was that here Jesus was dying on the cross and He looked down at the men that was crucifying Him and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The other thing that's pretty amazing to me about that was there at the foot of the cross was Jesus' own mother and how she was the one that really captured his heart. And here he was in pain, agony, suffering, but yet he was more concerned about the well-being of his mother than he was himself. And also we saw, and, and we brought this out, that Jesus did not die, but Jesus gave up his ghost. So we see that Jesus was in full control. And then last week we talked about the victory of Calvary. We took Jesus down from the cross. We had Him in that tomb. And you remember Mary Magdalene was the one that went out real early in the morning. Mary was another one of the people that was at the foot of the cross. And, and uh, you, you remember she was the one that Jesus cast the seven demons out of or the seven evil spirits out of. And she said she never would forget that. And she was the first. Remember we discovered she was the first to see the risen Savior. That was a pretty spectacular little event in itself. But that was the victory of Calvary. And now today... You know, and, and let me point out one more thing really, really quick. And I know I'm rerunning a bunch of stuff here. But you remember when Jesus was on the cross, at that time, all of Jesus' enemies, including Satan himself, they thought that they had Jesus right where they wanted Him. They thought, we're fixing to get rid of this guy once and for all. But little did they know, and Jesus had told people, Jesus said, if you tear this temple down, 
I will raise it back up in three days. And that's exactly what he did. They laid him in that tomb and he came out of that tomb three days later. So now that leaves us only one thing to talk about. And we're going to talk about the return to the Father. In other words, we are going to talk about Jesus' ascension to the Heavenly Father and what that really means. And, and you know, something that, that uh, you may not realize, with, without question, the ascension is one of the most overlooked events in the life of Christ. You just don't hear a lot of, of, of people, preachers, covering the ascension. I mean, we all just kind of take for granted, yeah, He came out of the tomb and ascended into heaven, but we don't really talk about it. We don't really preach about it. And we just kind of, as Christians, I think we just kind of just run right by it. But, you know, and, and for years, and rightly so, we have focused on Christmas and we have focused on Good Friday. We have focused on Easter and, and all the dozens of powerful events that took place during those very, uh, uh, you know, powerful events and, and what transpired in the midst of them. The ascension is kind of set aside. For some reason, it's not quite as, uh, I really don't know the right word. Uh, it's not compelling enough for, for, for some reason. It's, it's just uh, to deserve our wonder. But when you think about the ascension, it is only Christ ascending bodily into the sky in the presence of His disciples, in the presence of angels, and before, the, you know, before their very eyes, they was watching this happen. You know, it, it is only the ascension, the ascension that rightly understood is one of the most outstanding events in Scripture, when you think about it, in all of Scripture. And, and everything that we've talked about, going to talk about today, and we've talked about in the past three weeks, every bit of that is what we base our whole Christian faith on. That is the foundation of the, the you know, that is our key for hope. Our key for hope in the future. Our key, key for hope in this crazy world that we live in that we wonder just what's going to happen next. How bad does it have to get before God says, that's enough. Go get them. Bring them home. So let's look in Acts, the first chapter. And we're going to read a few verses. And this is going to be one of those sermons where you're going to need a bookmark or two. So be sure to get you a bookmark that you can put here in Acts, the first chapter. Y'all got it? Amen? I'm going to begin reading in verse 7. And He said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons 
which the Father hath put in His own power. That word power is authority. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost. In other words, but you shall receive power when the Holy Ghost or, or, uh, is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, did you get that? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him Go into heaven. Be sure to put you a bookmark there. Now, I want you to use your imagination a little bit this morning, this evening. I want you to picture this scene in your mind. Jesus is in the midst of His disciples, in the midst of His followers. And He is commissioning His followers to spread the message of Calvary. All the stuff that we've talked about these past three weeks. And suddenly, right before their very eyes, He begins to float upward. He begins His ascension. And that had to be a shock to the system for these guys and these followers. I mean, this must have been very, I don't even know the right word, exciting for, you know, I mean, just think if we were there watching us, we would be kind of like, oh my, <laughs> And do you see what do you see what my eyes see? This, this guy is starting to go up in the air. But yet, what a great privilege it must have been. And the reason I say it was a privilege, you have to understand that the 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 disciple of Jesus, and I'm talking about his hand-picked dudes, the eleven. Remember, Judas has already committed suicide by now. They, they had not been eyewitnesses to when Jesus rose from the grave, the actual event. Remember, Mary was the first one that saw Him and, and, and actually saw Him. You remember Peter and John went to the empty tomb, but they left and went back to the disciples. But there they were on the Mount of, of Olives and actually see Him rise from the earth and ascend into the presence of God, into the presence of His heavenly Father. So this scene must have been breathtaking in its quite awesome, overwhelming, powerful way that, that it transpired. I mean, it, it must have apparently stunned these disciples to some extent. Because they got pretty quiet when they saw this happening. But here's the cool thing. Once again, Jesus has done in their presence something of which mere humans are not capable of doing. Now, remember, they weren't eyewitnesses to His actual uh, rising from the grave. But they had seen Him walk on water. 
You remember Peter. What was the very one that said, I want to walk on water too. And Jesus said, come on. And he was doing a pretty good job until he took his eyes off of Jesus and then he sank like a rock. And you remember Jesus had to reach up and pull him back up out of the water. But, but they had seen that. They had seen him feed multitudes. They had seen him, well, feed multitudes with just, you know, a little bread and some fish. You know, they, they had seen him quiet storms. They had seen him heal people that was suffering in sickness. They had seen him rescue people from de- demons and evil spirits. And they had seen him raise people from the dead. All of those things they had seen. Now, here they are watching speechless as Jesus begins to defy gravity and was whisked from their sight and, and, and started to go up. And there they were just kind of staring, watching Him. So that makes me wonder why we have never thought of this event as being impressive enough. Well, there are several elements in this event, however, that are need in need of being underscored. And hopefully these, these keys, when we talk about the ascension, these keys to the ascension, I hope they're going to help us kind of get our minds wrapped around the ascension of Jesus uh, around such a fascinating event. Now, my first point this evening is the significance of this ascension. Now, the ascension of Jesus is validated by His earlier claims as His Father receives Him. You remember, He told them this is what He was going to do. So, as Christ ascends, one phase of His ministry comes to an end and another phase begins. You remember Jesus' ministry had begun with creation. You remember the Bible tells us in the Gospel of John, the first chapter, the first verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, Jesus was right there with God when this old world was created. And that ministry continued on with Him successfully completing the purchase of salvation. Now at this particular point, when Jesus ascends into heaven, that ministry stops, and now He's at His Father's side, and He would begin a ministry of intercession on our behalf one day by His crown sovereignty as King of kings and Lord of lords. In the meantime, He has to go. He has to depart in order to fulfill prophecy, to fulfill His promise. He said, if I go away, I'm going to send you a comforter. I'm going to send somebody to take my place. So, Jesus had to go in order to send the Holy Spirit. Why was that so important for us? Because now we have someone not only to minister to us, 
but in us and through us. Now, I told you Jesus started a ministry of intercession. I want you to look in Romans, the 8th chapter, verse 34. Turn there real quickly. Romans 8, verse 34. Y'all got her? Amen? Amen. Who is He that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Now, Here's something I want you to understand. I want to ask you a couple of questions. My first question is this. Do you ever think because you aren't good enough for God, He will not save you? Another question. Do you ever feel as if salvation is for everybody but you? Now, I want you to understand something here, folks. Why in the world would God have sent His Son? The Bible tells us in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Should not perish. Now I got it right. Ted's shaking his head at me. He does that to me every time. Probably the most quoted scripture in the Bible. But that, that God said that. God sent His Son. Why in the world would God send His one and only Son, allow Him to go through what He went through on that cross and not accomplish something? No one in their right mind would do that. No one. So, that's the reason I'm asking you this question, if God gave His Son for you, He isn't going to hold back the gift of salvation. That's not the way it works. If Christ gave His life for you, He isn't going to turn around and condemn you. Now, He will not withhold anything that you need to live for Him. Jesus is interceding for us as I speak in heaven. He's interceding on our behalf. No one else can add to what Jesus did. When Jesus died on that cross, that was the once and for all sacrifice. That was all that was needed. No one can add anything to that that's going to make a difference to to save us. Our sins are forgiven. Christ is our advocate, if you will. He is our mediator between us and and God. He looks after our interest and He presents our request to God. So you, you could say it this way. Christ makes perpetual intercession for us before God. So Christ's presence in, in heaven with the Father assures us that our sins have been paid for completely. They have been paid for uh, in full and we are forgiven. And that wonderful assurance frees us from the guilt and the fear of failure. 
Now the next point that I want to look at here just for a little bit is the response of the eleven. Jesus' eleven disciples that were watching this. Now, as they watch, Jesus rise from the earth and until the sky until He swept out of sight by a cloud. And they just keep staring, waiting, watching, looking. Not, nothing's happening. They're just, they're just looking up. And as He vanishes and they're staring up, it is likely they kept looking up. And you know why? Because they expected Him to come back. You see, ever since... Uh, you know, after all, ever since Jesus had risen from the grave, for 40 days, He had been coming and going. He, he had been leaving, and then He would show back up. He would leave again, and He would show back up. He'd always come back. But this time, He didn't. He didn't come back. And this must have created a certain variety of emotions for these 11 disciples. They, they were surely amazed, amazed at, at what they had just witnessed and perhaps they had some ritual, uh, residual disappointment, if you will, in the lack of immediate, uh, uh, an immediate kingdom. Let me show you something. Go back to Acts real quick, the first chapter. Remember I told you to put a bookmark there. I want you to look in, in uh, verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of Him saying, Lord, wilt Thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? They thought that Jesus was going to set up an immediate kingdom. So there, there may have been an element of fear because now Jesus was really gone. To say the least, this was a watershed moment for these 11 disciples. And, and they must have wondered, what do we do now? What, where do we go from here? We've always had Jesus to tell us. We've always had Jesus to show us. And now He's gone. We're by ourselves. And we don't know what to do. But we have the promise of His return. You still got your Bibles open to the first chapter of Acts? Look in verse 11. Which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, this same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as, he, as ye have seen Him go into heaven. In other words, they're, they're telling them He's coming back. So, as, as they're sitting there gawking, looking up, these, these two men kind of ask them, what are y'all doing? Why are y'all just standing there staring toward heaven? Because they gave them significant new 
information. Yes, Jesus will return, but just like this kingdom that they thought was going to happen right then, it will not be according to their timetable or their agenda, but in fulfillment of God's divine calendar. Folks, I want you to understand something here about Jesus' return. Jesus Himself does not even know when He's going to return. Only God knows. Now, I, I want to tell you something here. You know, it, it, it's real easy to get all stirred up in this old world we live in. We see all this crazy stuff happening. But I want you, if you don't get anything else out of this sermon today, you understand perfectly and unequivocally that God is still in control. God has got a plan and it's going to work out on His timetable and not before that. In the meantime, suck it up, buttercup, and get ready for a ride. Because that's the way it's going to be. The emphasis I want you to see here, however, in the angelic message was not Jesus would return, but how. And there's about four things I want to show you about Jesus' return. The reality of His return, number one, is going to be personal. Notice it says in verse 11, this same Jesus. Not a different one. Not cousin Ralph. Not his identical twin brother. The same Jesus. Not a substitute. He himself will come again as he promised him. And he told them this. He told them this in the upper room right before. I guess it was the night before he was crucified. All right, let's just go. I can see the question. Go to the Gospel of John, the 14th chapter. I can see it on y'all's faces. John, the 14th chapter. I want you to look in verse 3. And by the way, when you get there, put you a bookmark there in John too. Y'all got her, amen? Amen. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I, notice that, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. So, what does that tell us? We can look forward to eternal life. Why? Because Jesus has promised it to all who believe in Him. We need not fear because Jesus is preparing a place for us and He will spend eternity with us. Now, also His return, it's personal, but it is also powerful. In the same way He departed, Christ is going to come back. He left the earth, He went up to the sky, And he was whisked away by a cloud. And he's going to return the same way. He's going to step out on the cloud, come down from the sky to earth, and then that day, that's when he's going to establish his kingdom. That's when he will set up that that kingdom that his disciples expected him to set up that we was talking about a while ago because He's going to reign forever. And that's going to be 
The same thing you find in Revelation 19. If you look in Revelation 19, that magnificent scene when Christ comes with His saints and, and the kingdom this this world become the kingdom of God and His Christ. So all these worldly powerful leaders that we see that think they are holier than holier, that they think they are bigger in God. When He comes back, they're done. They're finished. They just lost their job. Personal, powerful, practical. I want you to understand the, the implication of this message is hope. And our hope is in the fact that He is coming back. Our concern is not when. We don't need to be worrying about that because it's going to occur. But rather that we be busy, that we be faithful and serving Him while we wait. I want you to flip to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. Verse 58. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Y'all got her? I didn't get very many amens there. Fifteen fifty-eight. Amen? Amen. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain. That word in vain is futile. In the Lord. So, what is Paul telling us here? Paul is saying that because of the resurrection, nothing we do is wasted. Now let me stop and interject something here. It's real easy for us as, as Christians, it's real easy for us as followers of Jesus to get apathetic. Because, you know, the, the thing, and I've pointed this out probably to y'all before, is, you know, we can talk to somebody, anybody, everybody about something, anything, everything under the shining sun except their relationship with Jesus Christ. We can cover it all. We become apathetic about serving the Lord because we don't see any results. But knowing that Christ has won. Remember when He was on the cross, He defeated sin, He defeated death, and He defeated Satan. He has won. We as His followers have won. And knowing that, that should affect the way we live right now. In every shape, form, and fashion. Don't let discouragement. Just because it seems like you're not getting somewhere with someone that you're trying to lead to Christ. Don't, don't let the lack of results keep you 
from doing the work that you need to do. Just keep doing what you know you should do. Keep doing the good that you can do and leave the results up to Jesus and up to the Spirit of God. All you and I can do, folks, is plant seeds. You're not going to save anyone. I'm not going to save anyone. We can take them so far, but that's it. Then it comes down to them and Jesus and what they're going to do with this guy. And understand, even though you think you're not doing any good, you keep doing it. That's just like y'all saying, well, you stop preaching. What good is that going to do? Other than y'all won't have to sit here and listen to me. Think of it this way. What good you do has eternal results. So let that be your motivation. Personal, powerful, practical, purifying is the last one. Understanding that Jesus could come back any second, any moment, should motivate us to live in a manner that's pleasing to Him. Looky here. Turn to 1 John. Same guy, but the one back there in the back. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Go back to Revelation and start back toward the front. That's where you're going to find Him. Same John as the Gospel of John, just different place. I want you to look in the third chapter. Y'all got her, amen? Amen. It's a good thing I don't throw y'all a Obadiah or a Zephaniah or one of them. We'd be here the rest of the day. (laughs) First John, the third chapter, both one. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be, be called the sons of God. Sons of God is literally children of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, same terminology, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And every man that hath this hope in Him, what purifieth himself, even as He is pure. Purifying. Folks, the Christian life is a process of becoming more like Christ. That's what Christian means. Christ-like. Growing in Christ. Every one of us should be growing in Christ every day. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. In other words, you've heard people say, well, I'm a work in progress. Every one of us is a work in progress. Y'all probably progressed a lot further than I have. But we're, we're works of progress. Now, this process, we just read it, this process will not be complete until we see Him. Face to face. But knowing that is our ultimate goal, that should motivate us. That should give us the courage To purify ourselves. What does that word purify mean? It means to keep morally straight. It means to be 
free from the corruption of sin. Yes, God does pure us, purify us also, but there is a process, there is an action that we must take as well to remain morally fit. So let's start trying to wrap this up. The ascension of Jesus Christ points our hearts upward. And understanding that Jesus overcame death, that should give us hope. That should give us confidence. His return to the Father prepares the way for our eternal home as well as His intimate return. His powerful display and this angel, angelic explanation that that is our, our text for today combined to rescue our hearts from fear. To to fill our minds with the promise that He's going to come back. That He will return. Christ returned to the Father. Yes, He was going home. But at least in part, why did He go home? He went home to prepare a place for us. An eternal home for us. Remember again, go back to the Gospel of John, the 14th chapter. There's probably not a funeral that I do that I don't quote this Scripture. Y'all got it? Amen? Look in verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. And My Father's house are many mansions. That word mansions is dwellings. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto Myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whether I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Now, a dwelling place in heaven for you, a dwelling place in heaven for me, that ought to mean something to us, folks. You know, what a fabulous thought that is. In this world, we're, we're homeless. We're sojourners. We're strangers. Just like Moses. He said that he felt himself to be uh, a stranger in a foreign land. You find that in Exodus 2.22, by the way. But in Christ, however, we are now part of His family. We, we are members of His family. Remember, we read that while ago. Sons of God. Children of God with a very powerful result. Let me show you this real quick, and we're going to wind this up. I want you to go to Ephesians, the second chapter. Ephesians, the second chapter. And I want you to look in verse uh, 19. Y'all got her? Amen. Amen. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners. What did I just tell you? but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. In other words, part of God's family. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together or being joined together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded or being built together for a habitation or a dwelling place of God Through the Spirit. Alright. Now think of it this way. To finally be home. 
to finally be in a heavenly home with our heavenly Father in the presence of God. Forgiven, restored, accepted, alive forever. This is the exact reason why Jesus came and walked the path that He walked. That is the exact reason why Jesus came was to accomplish that goal for us, for the joy awaiting Him. He came to save us. He came to give us a home where we will never be orphaned or, or, or unloved. Never be forgotten. And think about this, having a reunion with all your loved ones. That's the promise. And, and, and the splendor of living in heaven for eternity. Wonderful as, as that will be, that's only the whipped topping on the Sunday, the whipped cream on the su- Sunday, however. Because Charles Gabriel wrote it in a song, and this is what it says. He, he captured the wonders of heaven in a single verse. He says, when all my labors and trials are o'er, and I am safe on that beautiful shore, just to be near the dear Lord I adore will through the ages be glory for me. Oh, that will be glory for me, glory for me, glory for me. When by His grace I shall look on His face, that will be glory, be glory for me. I'm reminded of another hymn. This other hymn is called What a Day That Will Be. Some of you are probably familiar with it. But the chorus goes like this. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see and I look upon His face the One who saved me by His grace. When He takes me by my hand And leads me through the promised land. What a day. Glorious day. That will be. Home at last. Home forever. Home in the presence of God. That will be our glory. That's our goal. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank You for the opportunity we've had today to just spend time in Your Word, Father, to hear Your Word proclaimed. And I just pray, Father, that we can wrap our hearts and our minds around this and understand everything that You have promised to us will be fulfilled because You leave no promise undone. Father, we just thank You That you loved us enough so much that you were willing to sacrifice your son. That we could have all of our sins forgiven. And that we can have an eternal home in your very presence. And Father, we just thank you for it. We just ask you to forgive us each time we fail you. Father, just help us to get up. Say, God, I'm, I'm sorry. And try harder to do better next time. Father, you just bless us over and over in so many ways. And we thank you and we praise you for that. 
Father, I thank You for this church. I thank You for the privilege of being the pastor of this church, Father. And I certainly thank You for this church family. And Father, we just seek Your guidance. We seek Your direction upon this this church. Just lead this church down the path that we need to go. And Father, help us as we leave this place to live for You. To just go out and do the good that we can do and not worry about the results. Leave that up to You. Father, we ask that as we leave this place that You continue to watch over us, care for us, guide and direct us in this very challenging time that we live. Father, we ask again that You bless us with rain that we need. And certainly we pray for those not with us. We pray for each and every one that we have on our prayer list, Father, that are in some kind of need. We just ask that you meet that need. So Father, just thank you for loving us. And we'll be careful to praise your holy name. In your son's name we pray. Amen.